Hello, welcome to the Bright Club Southampton podcast. I am your host, as always, Dave Christensen. Hi, it's nice to have you here again, all for the first time. Uh, so, yeah, um, quick introduction. Um, well, actually, I'll say first, this is our 20th episode. Yeah, uh, we've been doing this a little while now. And, um, and yeah, so this, this episode is actually a little bit of an odd one, not our usual way of doing things, but... Uh, so just an introduction to who we are, what we are. So um, Bright Club Southampton, we put on a comedy night every few months in which we get researchers to tell jokes about what they do for a living. Um, yeah, and uh, it's a fun time. And uh, alongside them, we have some professional comedians telling uh, really good jokes about other things. Um, uh, not to do down the researchers, but yeah, the professionals, they're actually paid to tell jokes, so... They're like proper jokes. Um, yeah, and uh, and this episode is actually is a bit different. So um, we've got on our friend Tony Kinsella. Uh, Tony is a teacher and also a stand-up comedian. And uh, yeah, a little while ago, uh, I guess uh, the year before last, I think, uh, he hosted, he compared one of our shows. And um, so yeah, I sat down and had a bit of a chat with him about how he got into comedy, and, uh, yeah, and about his sort of uh, experience with Bright Club, and, um, yeah, what he thinks about stuff. Um, we chat about a variety of things. Uh, I, I won't give any of it away. No spoilers. Um, yeah, let's, uh, let's get on with that. Right, hi, Tony. Hello, Dave. Thanks for coming. It's an absolute pleasure, mate. <laughs> um, so... Uh, can I ask you first um, how long you've been doing stand-up comedy? I started in 1999, so I'm getting quite close to a 20th anniversary. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, what got you started on it? Yeah, I, uh, I'm a teacher by profession in further education, and uh, I was teaching an A-level course. And I was aware of the sort of working man's club circuit of the, the kind of 1970s comedians and people like uh, like Stan Boardman and so on who were still going strong. And I was aware that people could do... I'd seen Jasper Carrot at the Apollo Theatre and I was aware. But I didn't know there was this substrate or this kind of underground where anybody could have a go at it. And how I discovered that, um, I was teaching an A-level English language class uh, in the evenings, uh, two nights a week. And the students could submit whatever they wanted for their coursework. They could do a short story, they could do poems. There were songwriters who submitted song lyrics. And it was a guy called Alan Wilde who came up to me at the end and said, can I submit my stand-up comedy set? So I was quite surprised and said, that sounds really interesting. We chatted about it. And I said, where do you do stand-up comedy? And he said, oh, there's a pub in Manchester where it's it's available every Wednesday night. So I... um, I read his routine, it wasn't very good. <laughs> Although he was a very naturally funny lad, he was, he was a very sort of engaging character. And I said, I can write comedy, I'll write some jokes for you and some routines for you. And when, he, when I finished teaching him, we, we stayed in contact. And he actually went on tour uh, supporting Johnny Vegas and told me that a lot of the routines I'd written for him were going down quite well. And then he came back to Manchester and I went to see him and said, can you do my routine tonight? I want to see whether he gets laughs. And somebody heckled him in the first 30 seconds, so he completely abandoned the whole routine that I was expecting him to do and just spoke spontaneously to the audience. So I said to him at the end, you know, I'd come along specially <laughs> to hear whether my jokes got a laugh. And he said, well, you do it next week then. And I kind of thought, oh, the very thought of me being a stand-up comedian, for goodness sake. And I was driving home and I thought, there was nine comedians on tonight. If I'd been on and if I prepared myself well, 
Would I have been the best? No. Would I have been the worst? Absolutely not. There was absolutely terrible comedians on there. So I actually got up and did my own routine the following week, and the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> so was that um, that first routine you did, was that the stuff that you'd written for him that you then just did yourself? Or no, did because the stuff I'd written for him was quite sort of specific to his character and okay. personality, so um, I, I did pretty much write his, his only an eight to ten minute routine, but around kind of eight to ten minutes of, of comedy... Um, fairly hacked stuff looking back at it now about problems with relationships and so on. <laughs> and there's still a place for that if people do it well. Mm. Uh, and I, d- I did a comic poem at the end. I thought I wanted something to read from just in case I was, I was forgetting my script sort of thing. I did a, a comical poem, I think it was called Testosterone Man. <laughs> and, that, and, that, and then I was hooked and it was the type of club where you can come back next week if you wanted to. You just turned up and you got on. So I kind of got friends with the group and uh, kind of pretty much turned up on a weekly basis after that. And it was great because... I could try new stuff out, <laughs> you know. I could kind of uh, the writing is very important to me, so I knew that if I wrote seven or eight minutes, I could I could deliver it the following week and find out what was funny and what wasn't. Hmm. Um, thinking about that, then, um, how much like new stuff do you write, on, um, like on a week by week basis or sort of year by year? Basis? I did. I mean, even back then, uh, there was comedians who wanted it as a profession, and I never really did. I had a well-paid profession. I was really enjoying it as a little hobby, a little sideline. The writing's very important to me, but not so much the, the performing. So I had friends who were pretty much getting up and doing the same 10 minutes to the same audience week in, week out. But, of course, they were there by perfecting it. And then when they went on to bigger clubs, uh, you know, in no time, some of them were getting paid gigs. To me, I couldn't see the point of doing a routine, maybe a couple of times. Maybe if I hadn't written anything, I would maybe double up a couple of times. But it was always about, right, I've done that, I've got some laughs, let's see what else I can get laughs for. So I was pretty much um, writing on a weekly basis. I've now got a stockpile of one-liners, funny poems and things that if I got a really nice gig or a potentially paid gig, once in a blue moon of doing new material night at Manchester Comedy Store, I will pull out what comedians usually call the A material, <laughs> making quotation marks with my fingers here. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so, but, but yeah, it's, it's all about the writing. And uh, about five years ago... I hit 25 years teaching and I thought I should really do a one-man show about this. I've never written a full one-hour show. And I wrote a a show themed around Maslow's hierarchy of needs because for some reason everybody does Maslow's hierarchy of needs in teacher training but in the 25 years since I found absolutely no use for it whatsoever. So that was the kind of starting point. And I really enjoyed doing that and putting my own show on and attracting friends and colleagues as an audience. So I kind of made a New Year's resolution to myself that every year I'm going to write one good one-hour comedy show and I've pretty much kept that up uh, since, since I did my uh, education one. Yeah, no, that's um, that's really cool. So, um, thinking about your your longer shows then, then you want to, so the last couple that you've done. So, I mean, I, I've seen um, your uh, um, oh, the, the, <laughs> the, Hugo, the Hugo. What was it? The, the Hugo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw yeah. saw the Hugo, and um, tomorrow I'm looking forward to seeing the Largon. Yes. Um, so what what made you pick these, uh, like, Scandinavian I, subject matters? Yeah, I, I remember reading in the newspaper that uh, it was an article about how the Scandinavian countries are all consistently high on the happiness rankings. Every year there's, there's a, a ranking about, they ask thousands and thousands of people in various countries whether they're happy or not. And the, uh, the Nordic countries, because I would include uh, Finland, Iceland, always tend to be in the top ten. And Denmark was consistently at number one, which was my starting point. And the article said they're number one for happiness, even though they pay ridiculously high taxes, the weather's freezing cold, you get these long, dark winters. Uh, and uh, it became 
a subject of interest in the media. And this thing called Huga, H-Y-double-G-E. And I just kind of came across it. Got the book off Amazon, got really interested. I've been to Copenhagen, so uh, I had my own feelings, only on a city break, but I had my own feelings and really enjoyed Denmark. So I did a kind of combination of my holiday photographs and the research I'd done and a couple of little anecdotes and stuff like that and, and thoroughly enjoyed it. So then, since then, there's there's um, Lagom, which is a Swedish concept of happiness. There's, there's a little book of Lagom. I'm now currently researching the, the Lagom, what he's written. So I'm now researching the third part of a kind of trilogy, which is um, Sisu, which is the Finnish concept of it's courage rather than happiness. And I'm hoping to build all this into um, a potential Radio 4 pitch under the working title, If You're Happy and You're Nordic, and, uh, <laughs> to, to try and find some way of, uh, of kind of getting that into a script that would be quite Radio 4 friendly. Yeah, oh, I love the title. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I really hope you get that made. Um, I would look forward to hearing that. So, so you named a few comedians um, who you'd seen, people like Jasper Carrot, and you said Stan Boardman, I think. Stan... I'm not particularly a fan of Stan Boardman, but he was a okay. good example of what yeah. we're talking about in the working men's club circuit, yeah. yeah. So who were the comedians that you were kind of most sort of fans of when you first started? Yeah, and... I mean, I'll, I'll come back to the reference of Jasper Carrot. I don't know whether people still, still remember Jasper Carrot, but um, he's actually worth a lot of money now in TV production. There was an alternative comedy circuit, that people are all aware of involving Ben Elton and the young ones and Rick Mail and so on. But there was actually a very different alternative comic, comic circuit before that, which moved away from the, the, the Bernard Mannings and the dinner suits and the, the bow ties telling jokes about Pakistanis and fat mother-in-laws and things like that. And that was the kind of folk circuit. There was um, Billy Connolly, probably the biggest name. Uh, there was Mike Harding, who was from Manchester. There's a guy called Bob Williamson in Bolton. Um, and then there was there was the, the, the Jasper Carrots of this world, Max Boyce in Wales. And there was a real kind of, um, you know, they, they turned up with a T-shirt and jeans on, a lot of them had guitars and did funny songs. But the material was not, not kind of uh, the, the conventional racist, sexist type stuff. So I was kind of quite attracted to that. I was a big fan of Jasper Carrot and Billy Connolly um, back in, the, in their early days. Um, the one that I really admire above all others is probably Bill Hicks, the American comedian, who actually found more of an audience in England than in America. They seemed to get him. I never saw him live, but I've seen a lot of the DVDs. And uh, Sean Hughes, the Irish comedian who died last year, uh, said in an interview, he was a huge Bill Hicks fan. And he said, when you're a young comedian starting off, you try to watch as much comedy as you can. But if Bill Hicks is the very first com- comedian you see, you're just going to say, forget it. I'm never <laughs> going to get within a million miles of being that good. So so I, th- I think he's kind of very revered. Um, modern day stuff, big fan of Stuart Lee. Uh, Sarah Millican alike um, and uh, just trying to think uh, of the real kind of current crop I think James Acaster is, is really really one to watch I think he's a very interesting uh, comic mm. so How much do you think being a fan of these people has influenced the type of comedy that you're writing and performing? Yeah I mean massively I think um, as I say when I was a kid my dad would sit and my mum and dad would sit howling at the comedians and I suppose they joined in with laughter but I kind of became aware in my teens that there was something a little bit inappropriate about the nature of that comedy so I suppose uh, I've always been attracted for towards something that's a bit more personal comedians who are telling mm. jokes about themselves and it's coming from the heart uh, political comedy a big fan of Mark Steele for example so I like a lot of um, political comedy so I think most of what's what comes out of my mouth, I wouldn't tell a joke about it unless my heart was in it. So I suppose I have been kind of uh, attracted towards comedians who do that, who, who are very honest and open about their their kind of feelings and their politics and things like that. 
Mm. But I think um, from what I've uh, seen of you performing, um, I feel like you have quite a lot of quite short, silly, fun jokes. Yes. Um, yeah. Which I wouldn't associate with a lot of the comedians that you're naming, actually. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a guy called Gary Delaney who's um, yeah. uh, one of the current circuit. I like Stuart Francis, I like Milton Jones. I suppose now that you, you pose the question that way, I suppose I've got quite... Uh, esoteric and quite wide-ranging taste, really, yeah. And I do love one-liners. I love the... You know, the Gary Delaney's last tour was called uh, Comedy Purist, and I do like the purity of a, a joke that depends on every word being exactly the right place yeah. in order for it to work. It can be a bit of a risk, you know, they can fall a bit flat down again. Yeah. Um, but I do like one-liner jokes, and the beauty of it, it's the beauty of the film Airplane. If you don't like one particular joke, there'll be another one longer in 30 <laughs> seconds, so, yeah. so you don't have to kind of be, be too sort of stuff. I suppose in the little 10-minute segments I do, I tend to move more towards the kind of quick punch, punch, punch. Whereas now that I've started to develop uh, longer shows, then maybe that's where my, but you know, my kind of longer term influences are coming in now. Mm. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's easier to be um, more wordy and if if you've got more time. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. I, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I just I think sometimes when I wonder about um, comedians and influencers, I think um, so people like uh, Stuart Lee. Um, and James Acaster are probably a couple of the comedians who I like most at the moment. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't have thought that I have tried to write anything which is remotely similar to either of them. I, I know there was a couple of days ago I was um, looking at something someone else has written and I made some suggestions and I realised that because I had just read um, Stuart Lee's book recently, I was writing a bit that sounded a lot like a Stuart Lee bit. It, it wasn't, but I felt like it was his voice that I was trying to write. Yes. And then I thought, oh, okay, I, yeah, <laughs> that's a bit uncomfortable in a way. But... I, I, yeah, I mean, I've seen comedians who've actually structured their routines in a very Stuart Lee type way, mm. and it just seems hack, and it just seems like you, you know, you're not original enough, you're not fresh enough. So I think, I think it, the word inimitable is kind of true of a lot of comedians. There's one I should just mention who's probably my all-time comedy hero, but I've not mentioned yet. That's Alexis Sale who was also mm. in that, that kind yeah. of first new wave of uh, comedians. And I, I, I would never purport to be anywhere in the same quality as Alexis Sale, but I have tried the losing your temper rants <laughs> when I get onto political subjects, so I suppose. In a way, it's kind of art- it's not artificial with him. He's yeah. absolutely yeah. <laughs> raging against the world. But I'm not naturally as angry as Alexis Sale. But if I wanted to do a routine where I'm making quite a strong political point about Theresa May or David Cameron or whatever, I will try to call on my inner Alexis Sale <laughs> to try and kind of sell it and, and, and you know, be as angry as I possibly can. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there are some comedians, good comedians, who you can learn from, and other ones who are just inimitable and yeah. don't, don't even try. <laughs> Do you think um, it works for you when you're pretending to be angry or, or trying to channel anger? I, I've done... I, I'm kind of heavily involved in Bolton Socialist Club, uh, not too far from where I live, so I've done... Um, I did a whole routine on Brexit and uh, my feelings towards Brexit, and... I was genuinely angry. There's a bit in the show where I didn't open the curtains for 48 hours and never got out of my uh, pyjamas. I was just raging against the world, banging mm. away on my keyboard. Every time Nigel Farage came on, I screamed, you're not my real dad at the TV screen. <laughs> it was, you know, I was on that much of a meltdown. So when I tell the story of how I felt about Brexit, I need that anger. <laughs> and yeah. I need to kind of revisit that in order to make it work. You know, you know, Lots of people are angry about it, but you need to express that anger for something like that. So mm. I don't do a huge amount of political comedy. Right. But when I do, you know, Alexi is, is my kind of yardstick in terms of what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah, I'm just wondering. Um, so I, I, I haven't tried to do anything that political, really. But, um, but I have a couple of times tried to be kind of angry. But I think either I get actually angry and then it's not funny anymore because I'm just angry and it's, yeah. no one likes that. Um, or um, 
the first time I performed, I was um, I was doing a bit where I was trying to kind of channel Michael Lake was the person who I was thinking of oh, yeah, and Michael his Lake, anger. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, I uh, I think I was just enjoying myself too much. So yes. I don't think it was believable anger because I had a smile on my face while I was shouting. Were you genuinely angry about what you were talking no, about? No, no, not right, at all. I, I, think, I think that's the key. Yeah, I, yeah. I couldn't pretend to be angry about something I didn't give a toss about. But as yeah. I say, I was genuinely so upset about the Brexit result. I did a little yeah. on Trump when that result came through. So I think you're probably only going to be even partially convincing in your anger if it's if it's coming from within, if it's coming from you know, a real place, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I just... Um, I don't know. I... I, d- I can't think whether I've seen you being angry, but um, uh, every time we have spoken and when I've seen you perform, um, you just always come across as uh, being a very happy, nice man. So I can't I am, really yeah, imagine you, you know, the, the, being yeah, angry. Yeah, and... doing, the angry rants on stage are actually quite cathartic. So yeah. okay. <laughs> you continue to be a thank you, reasonably nice man when I come off stage. I don't do a huge amount of political comedy, but I quite enjoy it when I do. Yeah. And I would only do something where I felt very strongly about it, so therefore the anger, not always, but, but quite often seems appropriate. Yeah. Sometimes you can land a few winners with sarcasm as well. It doesn't always have to be an angry rant. Yeah. But um, in a way, I'm preaching to the converted because the Bolton Socialist Club, yeah, no, of course. the clue is in the name, so they're all on my side. Although when I did my Brexit show, there was one person who had voted leave. So I was able to target him a little bit. And, you know, he had his reasons and we had a good little banter on stage. I <laughs> angry with him. I right. angry with the concept of, you know, the things that angered me about Brexit. But, uh, yeah. So I've had once um, one uh, audience member in a show, I was performing in Portsmouth and... Um, I was uh, a support act for uh, this guy who was doing an Edinburgh preview show. Um, and so I was just doing 15 minutes. Um, and in my set, I had um, a bit where I was talking about um, uh, getting a transplant and um, your immune system rejecting the transplant or, or the possibility of that happening because your immune system recognises yeah. it as being foreign cells. Right. And I was doing that as kind of an analogy about um, Brexit, and uh, right. I was talking, and I, I said um, that it seemed like the immune system was racist for killing these foreign cells, and uh, and this one man shouted no when I said that the immune system was racist, which was strange. Um, and then a bit later on, I was then talking about um, the use of this this type of stem cells, which um, you can make from the person's own cells, so that you can effectively give them a transplant that's made up of their own cells. Yeah. So they're not foreign. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I said, so it's a problem solved, but doesn't it feel like the racists have won? And then the same man goes, yes! All right. <laughs> and I was, it was an uncomfortable moment. I thought, oh, I'm used to performing to an audience who is on my side completely yes. and yeah. preaching to the converted. But um, <laughs> I think Stuart Lee has a feeling that Al Murray, the pub landlord, yeah. clearly if you get the joke, the whole thing is deeply ironic. But yeah. he actually feels he's got a right-wing audience who... Just take it at face value. Yeah. <laughs> so it is a very risky game to play, yeah. yeah. There's a thing as well, um, uh, thinking about that. Um, I think it's um, Simon Munnery um, yeah. saying, uh, um, if uh, if the audience is behind you, you're facing the wrong way. Yes, <laughs> yeah, very good, yeah. Yeah, yeah I love Simon Munnery, but to see if he was Edinburgh show, yeah, he's, he's another real maverick talent, yeah. 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 Um... Yeah, a bit of a change of topic. So, um, so did you first hear about Bright Club um, through us, basically through Jamal? Yeah, my son, my son is um, is studying in Southampton, and he met uh, yourself and Nickel, and he told me about Bright Club, and it sounded really interesting. 
think the first came uh, first time I came, I just came to watch, if I remember rightly, and the second time you very kindly allowed me to compare. So I just thought this was a Southampton thing. <laughs> so I kind of came and watched it and thought, oh, that's a good idea. I wonder why they don't have it in Manchester. And I think it was either yourself, Dave, or somebody else said, oh, it's all over the country. There must be one in Manchester. And it was only when I came back and went on Facebook and, and looked at the page that I found out, indeed, there was one <laughs> on my doorstep. I didn't have to travel all the way to Southampton to be involved in it. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, since then, I've done the Newcastle one and uh, there's a couple of others that uh, are kind of on my radar. I just think it's a lovely concept, uh, you know, a, a fab idea for a, a different type of gig, really. So, yeah, mm. like, like a lot of things, I found out the sort of long way around. <laughs> yeah. So so how many times have you done those other ones? Then? Um, uh, I've done Manchester once as compare and once as a, an act where I just kind of okay. turned up and did it. And I did the Newcastle one just as a one-off, yeah. So, but I've, I've attended lots of others, so you know yeah. I'm interested in in seeing the other work of all comedian of other comedians who are working in that uh, genre kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, have you tried to write for those ones then more stuff, kind of maybe based around your teaching and the first when I compared at Southampton, it fell perfectly because when I said before about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs show, yeah. I was like, I just had that written and I was just kind of working on it at that time. So actually, it was a brilliant opportunity to yeah. to, to trail a big chunk of it. So that fitted in perfectly because it was all about teaching and uh, you know the process of teaching and obviously there was lots of academics in the audience that just worked out perfectly. And uh, yeah, if I remember rightly, I think it was around about the same time where I did a lot of those gigs. So I kept on bringing me Maslow's hierarchy of needs on stage and uh, and using that as the main. Um, principal part of the act really so it just came it just kind of fell nicely into place yeah but i think um uh so i i don't know what other bright clubs think about this kind of thing we um we tend to take the position that we don't necessarily need any performer and certainly we don't have any expectation of what the compare or headliners do um they do whatever they think is going to be funny yeah but um we think i guess that um anyone who treats a topic in a kind of academic way, it doesn't matter whether they're a researcher or whether that is their research subject or if it is um, very kind of research heavy. So I think um, thinking about your your Nordic shows kind of thing, I think that kind of thing would fit because you are looking into a subject fairly deeply um, and an unusual subject. It's very research-based, yeah. yeah. As, as I say, I, I, I like to go to the country because I like to experience... The, the other thing I've done is to, to try some of the concepts in my own life and, and genuinely see how they worked out. So, for example, uh, in the Largon one, the Swedes do a lot of foraging for food. Mm. So I went in my local park and took photographs of things that I could use as food and then actually, <laughs> actually genuinely tried to cook <laughs> or kind of made a salad out of the stuff that I found. It was absolutely disgusting. <laughs> it, it made for a funny part of the show with the photographs kind of thing. Yeah. So that's another nice thing about a research-based show. You know, a lot of researchers do the research and then try something practical. <laughs> so I'm kind of in a, in a position where I can do that and started lighting candles and eating fruit-based porridge to see whether Danish concepts made me happier and, and things like that. So... So I think that always works quite well because then you've got your own little anecdotes to go alongside the research, you know. Kind of nice. and in a way, Bright Club is very much this, isn't it? That it's, um, it's not just about the research, but it's about your role in all of that and yeah. the pressures that that research is putting on you, <laughs> you know, the things that you struggle to understand and so on. So, yeah, so, yeah, so, so, yeah a lot of the, uh, the Nordic research I'm doing is very much in a kind of Bright Club vein, really, yeah. Yeah, and it's not just... Uh, it's maybe not just what you learn about your subject, but what that then teaches you about yourself. Yeah, that's absolutely, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've never thought about it that way. Um, that's well, nice. I've actually got, once all the Nordic stuff, um, I'm still, wait, still waiting to see whether your, uh, your fellow countrymen of Norway come up with a concept. That's the, that's the one <laughs> gap in the jigsaw puzzle at the moment. But I booked a holiday this summer 
to Italy, to Sorrento and Naples with a company called Travel Eyes. And what they do is they take 50% sighted passengers and 50% blind passengers. And as a sighted passenger, I actually get a genuine 50% discount. It's the normally for obvious reasons. It's the people with the, the disability who pay more, uh, who pay less. Sorry, but in this case, because I'm offering a service, and I'm more than happy to do that because I think it'll be interesting. Uh, then I get a discount. But what they do, they pay you up with a different blind person each day, not as a carer, but to be their eyes, which is why the company is called Travel Eyes. So my job, and as a, a teacher and a comedian and a writer, I think I could hopefully do it quite well. Is to describe the beauty of the scenery, and, uh, and so, so I, was, I was actually thinking about what I want to get out of this. Um, as well as kind of giving something back because I do genuinely want to help the people I'm going to be involved with. And I thought, first of all, you get a big discount on your holiday. <laughs> uh, secondly, I'm really interested to see whether I look at uh, a community differently uh, because I'm now, I've got the obligation of somebody who's not looking at it. And I think maybe sometimes you can get a bit lazy about what you're looking at. So, mm. I re- And thirdly, and obviously most importantly to, to a fellow comedian, I'll probably get a show out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Take photographs of some of the people I get to meet, have some nice conversations about you know their life and what it's like to be a blind person. I, I can have quite a nice... That's a bittersweet show by the end of it. Sounds yeah. a bit cynical, but you know, there's lots of different reasons why you experience things in the way you do. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't think that sounds cynical at all. I think that sounds like a really, really cool thing to do. Um, no, I would definitely look forward to to hearing about that. Um, that sounds really interesting. I mean, certainly for me, because I um, uh, do research on diseases that cause blindness, um, right. I have met with a few of uh, the patients that we work with um, and talked with them. Um, but not very much at all. And the patients who I have met and talked to, they um, they are losing their eyesight, but can right. basically still see. Yeah. So it, it's basically because I'm giving them a tour of the labs, and then yeah. for um, so these uh, so a couple of them, well, some of the older patients who've come in, they because they can't see anything, they would just have a harder time looking around the lab. Um, so then I'm just showing around the ones who still have some sight remaining. But um, one of the things that fascinates me is why would you pay fifteen hundred quid to go to this beautiful, you know, touring around Pompeii and the island of Corsica when you can't actually see it? Um, yeah. I was reflecting. I'm guessing it's things like a change of routine, the music, the sounds, the smells, the food. <laughs> and as I started to think about it, I thought, yeah, there's actually still a lot in it for them. Yeah. If they then got somebody else to help them to paint the picture of the scenery. Also, it, it, it just feeling the sun on your face. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah. But it'll be um, interesting to hear how they interpret that. You know, why why are you spending a huge amount <laughs> of your savings to come to a country that you can't actually see? And I'm really interested to see what the answer would be and what I'm yeah. missing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm still... I would think also um, hearing people talking in other languages. Um, that's something yeah. that yeah. I enjoy when I'm in other countries. Yes, just absolutely. Yeah. Listening to things which yeah. sound different. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, no, but that'll be interesting to to find out from them what they're getting out of it. So I've got no Italian at all, so I'm hoping some of them might have. I can yeah. tell them what it says on the menu. I can tell them what it says on the menu. They can translate it for me. So yeah. <laughs> in the perfect combination. <laughs> You'll be their eyes and they'll be yeah. your brain. Be my, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing that um, you reminded me of earlier that I, I thought I'd ask about. So, so you were talking about... Um, uh, doing some like poems and things on yes, stage. Yes, I do. Yeah. So I've seen um, on Facebook uh, you've shared some poems sometimes, yes. and um, and Jamal showed me some other poems that you've yeah. written. Um, I'm just sort of wondering how you go about those things. Yeah, and, uh, good question. And they're uh, quite a different tone to the rest of it sometimes. I've got to, I mean, I write a lot of very serious poems. And yeah. 
more political than, than in my stand-up, so when you were asking about the ranting before, um, I do write a lot of political poems, hmm. but I have actually used very short, punchy, when you talked about the one-liners, I've actually got, I don't know whether I've invented a genre here, <laughs> um, but I've got a, a lot of one-liner poems, I'll, I'll give you one example, which is one of my favourites, there's a poem called A Dodgy First Date in a Posh First Restaurant, uh, sorry, A Dodgy First Date in a Posh French Restaurant, and it goes, um, the menu was terribly tricky, Cordon Bleu for the Nouveau Riche. I told her I wanted a quickie, but the correct pronunciation was quiche. <laughs> now, the beauty of that, it's actually an old joke. Yeah. Uh, I took a lady to a restaurant. I, I made the mistake of saying I wanted a quickie. So, so it's a kind of one-liner joke. Yeah. Turn it into a poem. You've got the joke, and then you've also got the art form, so, which people will appreciate. And niche and quiche is a fantastic rhyme. Yeah. So, so you kind of got that double whammy. But the other thing I found, I did one called Tinder, which fell totally flat. And it was... Uh, I met a girl. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, I always embrace technology in matters of the heart. I met a girl on Tinder. Her name was Joan of Arc, and exactly like you, it didn't get a single pick. T- t- and uh, I kind of realised as I finished it, it's a bit too subtle. So I explained it to the audience and I said, "Right, Tinder is a dating app, yeah, but Tinder is also a very combustible type of one." And they all laughed at the definition. So I've actually built that in now. So I actually do that poem, knowing that it won't get a laugh, knowing absolutely solidly that nobody's going to laugh at it. And then what I usually do then is do the first line of the next poem and then suddenly stop and then go, look, Joan of Arc was burnt at the stake, right? Okay, you got. And I actually walk into the audience and kind of pretend that I'm angry with them for not understanding and, and then I kind of over-explain it. Right, uh, Tinder is a very combustible form of wood. Are you aware of that? Did you all know that Joan of Arc was burnt at the stake? Okay, right, there's this dating app called Tinder, right? And by that point, they've all kind of got it. So the over-explanation becomes the joke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then what I will then do, come back on stage, calm myself down, and then repeat that next that first line of the next poem again, and it works beautifully because <laughs> you, you've got the you've then got the advantage of the poems. Hopefully, they're funnier themselves. You've got a nice little bit of construction going on, and then you've got this whole kind of breaking down the the fourth mm. wall, as it were, and the, you know the, the, again the, the ranting, the, the Alexis sale ranting comes in useful again because I pretend to be really angry with them for not getting it. Yeah, I'm the genius who created this thing for God's sake. What's the matter with you? <laughs> and that, that, I started to build that in a lot when I do the comic poetry. I've done it in conventional. Um, Comedy clubs, it tends to go down really well. People are a little bit unsure at first. When you, first of all, that you don't get a laugh and then that you're angry about it and people are not quite sure whether, whether they've upset you or not and then suddenly they realise that the whole thing is... Maybe that is a bit Stuart Lee, that yeah, deconstruction. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking <laughs> Maybe that. I've learned something from him, yeah. 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 And he certainly, um, over his last... Actually, I haven't seen the last show or maybe the last two shows, but over a few shows he was gradually going further and further into yeah, the audience. yeah. Um, yeah. So then, uh, yeah, one of them, the DVD, he he goes up onto the balcony right, yeah, and yeah, sort of yeah, hanging off the balcony. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he, at the start, is just stepping in a few rows and, right, and sort of yeah, walking around yeah. the audience. Um, and yeah, and having a breakdown about. Yes. Um, I think most of his breakdowns are more kind of existential about his whole life rather than just yeah. that particular performance. But yes, um, yeah, and he, he does it beautifully. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the routine about all the dead comedians coming and coming onto the stage, and he has to walk through a forest of dead comedians, and he, he acts it beautifully. There's some comedians telling him come and join us, and there's other ones saying no, keep on going, you'll be absolutely fine. And he mentions a bit Hedberg and, and comedians he's worked with who's died, but the way he acts it, the way he's kind of looking scared of the ghosts and looking from left to right, that's actually quite conventional, <laughs> you know, music hall comedian in a way. But he, yeah. he just he just carries it off beautifully. I think he's a genius. Yeah. Not everybody likes him, not everybody's cup of tea. But I'm glad you like him as well because I think he's a genius. Yeah, it strikes me that most people who are into comedy like him, like, yes, yeah. even if he uh, doesn't appeal 
necessarily to like a wider audience. There's a lovely joke in one of the so. shows where he was actually a librarian before he was a comedian. And his boss is saying that he's a really terrible librarian. But then one of his fellow librarians says, no, no, you've got to watch lots of other librarians at work. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it'd be great to have that excuse for other things. (laughs) I'd love to be able to say that about my work. (laughs) No, he's not a very good scientist. Oh, no, don't worry. You've got to see the other scientists. (laughs) Uh, so today, um, you uh, very generously gave us some of your time when we were doing a um, training workshop. <laughs> um, so we are, um, at the time of recording, preparing for our next um, Bright Club show, where um, we have uh, an all-female lineup yes. celebrating um, women in research, and uh, um, it's uh, the day after International Women's Day. So um, hundred years since the suffragettes got the vote. Yes, yeah. that too. That too recently. So. Um, uh, but so we're aware, and um, it's sudden, certainly something which I have been uh, frustrated and surprised by at other comedy nights that there is um, quite a low representation of women um, in comedy generally. Yeah. Um, and then uh, it's also an impression amongst people that um, there are fewer women than men in um, science, particularly, but um, mm. but sort of academia more widely, quite often. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering what your impression is of it in comedy. Um, I mean, first of all, good for you for, for putting on an all-female show. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Uh, there was uh, Things are getting better. And way back in the early noughties, I think about 2002, uh, I was involved in Manchester with three other guys of putting on an event called Stand Up 100. We were actually the biggest news item. The, the media were all over us for a day. And we, we wanted to get 100 comedians into one show which is an absolute logistical nightmare, but we, we did actually pull it off. We, we did it twice in the end. First time we got 103. Second time I think we got 112. And the first show, a completely unknown pub comic called John Bishop went on at the end, who you may have heard of since, yeah. but he was, he was totally unknown at that time. But the reason I mentioned that, we pre-internet, so we had to get various comedy promoters to give us lots and lots of mobile phone numbers and, and ring lots of people up uh, and see if they would do it. And um, we used to meet once a week to see how it was progressing. And we became aware when we got up to about 70 comedians that we barely had any females. And as a little sideline, we had barely any ethnic uh, comedians from different ethnic backgrounds. And we were just basically getting as many numbers as we can and ringing people, and they just weren't out there. And I think eventually when we got the 103, I would say maybe 10 or 11 of them were female and only one or two were from a different ethnic background. And in 2002, that was the lie of the land. I think if we did it now, I'm aware that I mentioned a lot of male comedians, but... uh, Jeb Brister, Shappy Cassandi, uh, Lucy Porter, there's loads of absolutely fab uh, female comedians out there now. And uh, I think it would be a lot easier to get a more representative uh, breakdown. But I don't think things are perfect yet. Only about two years ago, uh, there was a story about um, a female comedian getting a message from a quite a well-known club, I think in Liverpool, saying they decided to, to not have her on next week because there was already another female comedian on. And God forbid that we should have two female comedians on the same night. And I'll, I'll reference the other girl who was actually kept on the bill, a lady called Rachel Fairburn, who I know very well. She withdrew from the gig and said she wasn't prepared to do it if that was the sexist attitude of the club, which, you know, good for her kind of thing, because she turned down a paid gig. So the fact that that could still happen <laughs> in the 21st century is mm. quite frightening. And then, of course, you've got the um, the whole gender pay issue thing, because I think... Uh, I think it was Zoe Lyons who was on um, not the week about a week. She was on the news quiz on Radio Four, 
and she made the point that it was very good to have two females on the panel but she wasn't sure if that was the BBC being representative or trying to save some money, <laughs> yeah. which is a very, which is a very yeah. good line. So I think things are getting better, and I think um, women are much better represented, and, and shows like the one you're doing, you know, kudos to that, because it's the way where we should be. Maybe it's less attractive as a profession to women, but I think um, that, that may be changing quite significantly now. I, my, my guess is that, um, uh, like in a lot of other lines of work and a lot of other things in general it's that thing uh people say um if you see it you can be it and it's um yeah possibly a, a lack of role models meaning that fewer women go into it and, and same with uh fewer people from ethnic minorities um start off but but that is also um a lot because the um tv shows don't put them on kind of thing it's it's yeah. it is a strange thing that um there has been this idea, and it's not just in comedy and a lot of other things, certainly um, I've heard about it from radio as well, that um, uh, I used to listen to a podcast, um, I can't remember what it was called, um, I'll, I'll, edit, I'll insert that in <laughs> into yeah, my yeah. bit later, but um, uh, it was about uh, women in radio, and they were talking about this idea that people used to have that men don't want to w- listen to women, and yes. that's why there is women's hour, and there aren't a lot of women on elsewhere on radio, because for some reason they think that men only want to listen to men, mm. which seems crazy to me. Yes, um, yeah. But uh, but I think then it's that thing in uh, comedy panel shows where they think men don't want to see women on the TV, mm. so um, they'll only put one on per set. Yes, yeah, yeah. which which seems really really strange. But um, it's it's that decision that someone made at some point that um, or, or some people made at some point that then you're going to attract fewer women doing it because they assume they're not going to get the opportunities yes, because yeah, yeah. there aren't very many female comics on TV. Um, in fact, when you, when you asked me about the, the, the early influences that I used to listen to, certainly there were no female comedians in that whole stable of Bernard Manning and so and go. No. But even when we talked about the, the radical left and the changes, I don't remember any females in that kind of Billy Connolly and Jasper Carrot circuit. There was Joe Brand in the in the kind of and French and Saunders doing yeah. kind of sketch stuff. But I suppose it's tiny steps, I suppose, you know, that was slightly more radical than having no women, <laughs> even though you could argue it was a bit token. And then I suppose bit by bit, like all professions, uh, you know, the the girl power has been coming through a little bit more and they're the, the much better represented than they were, but it's still not perfect. It's um it's it's a hard thing to kind of push though. Um one thing that uh I have um, wondered about with organising these shows. So we um, try as much as we can to um, have a sort of balanced representation of genders in our yeah. shows, um, yeah. other than this one coming up where it's all women. But other than that, um, we've tried to have balance. We don't have balance because we have seven people performing at each show, so <laughs> it's pretty tricky to end up getting a 50-50. On a very but... positive note in terms of Bright Club, um, we're talking a lot about representation on the stage, but mm. then you've got the audience as well. And again, it was a very, certainly the working men. Again, the clues in the title isn't it? it was working men's clubs that Bernard yeah. Manning was doing and people like that. Um, but I've been to three different bright clubs, uh, three different locations of bright clubs, and it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but a sort of fifty-fifty split. There seems to be as many as many women as men. I think possibly so. Even even more females come in. And I'll just tell you a quick story. There's a, a lady from Birmingham, a comedian called Karen Bailey, and I saw her do the. The, uh, the Frog and Bucket, which is a very famous Manchester club, on a Friday night, where you had loads of hen parties and loads of stag parties, so big groups of men, and she did 20 minutes, and she absolutely took the roof off, it was absolutely superb, one of the best 20 minutes of comedy in that environment I've ever seen, loads of applause breaks, huge round of applause at the end, 
and then she was playing a local pub uh, where, near where I live about three or four days later. And I went along to see her again. And before she went on stage, I said, Karen, you're going to absolutely smash it. I saw you at the Frog and Bucket. It was superb. She said, no, I'll die on my backside tonight. So I said, why do you say that? It was brilliant. She says, look around the room and tell me what you see. And there was lots of couples. There was lots of men and women kind of holding hands and arms around each other. So she said, because it's couples, they won't, they won't laugh at me. The men will be terrified of laughing because the girlfriends will be angry. And why are you laughing at her when you never laugh at my jokes? Right. And a lot of the women will be kind of thinking, why is she up there when I could be up there? And sure enough, the same 20 minutes, she struggled like anything. Yeah. Barely got a laugh and came off to the sound of her own footsteps. So I'd never thought about that <laughs> until, until you know, that moment. When it was all men sitting together and all women together, she smashed it. When it was couples, she... She struggled. Wow. So I'm not quite sure what my conclusion is on that, but it was a very interesting little, little piece of psychological research. I mean, my conclusion would be it seems like those are some uh, terrible men. Why aren't they laughing at their partners? <laughs> well, that's certainly true, yeah, yeah. Or maybe not laughing quite as raucously as this professional comedian, yeah, yeah. I mean, that also seems like it would be a bit of a harsh thing to judge. If someone else laughed more at a professional comedian than at something I'd yes, said, I think I'd say, that, yeah. oh, well, yeah, that's, that's their job. <laughs> Yeah. I like to think I'm funny, but I'm not really getting paid for it. So. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for joining me, Tony. This has been a fun chat. It's an absolute pleasure, um, Dave. I love, I love Bright Club. I love, I love the, uh, the energy behind it and the, uh, the whole ethos behind it. So it's an absolute pleasure to be involved. Oh, thank you. Um, I've got one more thing to ask that I thought of earlier. Um, I'm going to uh, channel, uh, channel Stuart Goldsmith. Um, uh, I don't know if you listen to his uh, Comedian's Comedian podcast. I'm afraid I haven't, no. no. So um, uh, there's a question that he often asks, um, which is, uh, are you happy? Uh, and I'm going to ask that because you've done now a couple of shows, which is all about um, uh, yes. Scandinavians finding happiness. And uh, so, are, are you happy? I, d- I don't particularly. I'll, I'll be honest. I don't entirely embrace the uh, the Nordic. There's things that I've learned from it, and there's things that I've kind of um, you know built into my own routine. But I suppose it's all down to yourself, really, isn't it? Um, is anybody really truly happy? And I don't wake up every morning, you know taking photographs of butterflies and singing <laughs> singing songs from the great operas and things like that. I'm certainly contented with my life, and I think um, I've got to an age now where uh, I don't allow small things to upset me and anger me and things like that, big things. So we talked about Brexit before, which hmm. I think we should get worked up and, uh, and kind of angry about. But generally speaking, I think... Uh, you know, I'm 57 on my next birthday. Uh, I'm still in pretty good health. I'm still hoping that I'll have a nice retirement where I can get even more involved in some of these things. I've got a lovely family. So, uh, you know, all the things that matter to me, uh, I'm generally quite happy with. Work, I'm getting a little bit cynical about working in education after 32 years, but at the end of the day, still be... 90% lovely students on a daily basis and can cope with the 10% who are not lovely on that basis. So I suppose on the whole, I would... I'd be reluctant to necessarily embrace the word happy, but I think I'm pretty content with life. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> well, thank you. You're very welcome, Dave. Thank you for involving me in this. Hello again. Uh, yes, no, it's still me. Um, my voice too much in this podcast. I apologise about that. But, um, yeah, it's just me doing the outro now. So, uh, yeah, it's almost over. It's almost over. Don't worry. Uh, but please don't stop the podcast yet because I want to tell you um, 
a couple of things. Well, actually, first I'll just say thanks to Tony again, and uh, and thanks to Jamal for hosting us, having that conversation. Um, yeah, Tony's lovely, isn't he? Uh, oh, yeah. I in the podcast there in the interview, I couldn't remember the name of another podcast that was about uh, women in radio, and it's called Sound Women. Is that podcast? Uh, it it's not going on anymore, I don't think. But um, it is very good, and all their old episodes are still available around online. So um, I'd I'd recommend going and checking that out. It's a good podcast. Um, yeah, no, what I do want to tell you about before you leave is uh, we are planning our next show. Um, we're lining up performers and. We are sorting out the venue and uh, the professional comedians, and it's looking like it's going to be a good one. But um, but also, we have, before then, uh, on the 12th of May, uh, so uh, just 10 days from today on the day of release, uh, we have uh, a training workshop. Uh, so we do a couple of these training workshops between every show, so every few months we do some training, a couple of training workshops. And um, yeah, we've got one coming up uh, in just over a week. If you look up... Uh, Bright Club Southampton on Facebook, you will be able to find an event for that training workshop. Uh, in these workshops, I, I'm not entirely 100% certain what we're doing in this one, but generally in these things, we cover things that will be useful if you want to perform, but also just the skills that we think are useful in general for public speaking. So um, I think we might be doing uh, some kind of improv- improvisational things, which uh, can be useful when you're trying to kind of pretend that you know more about your subject than you do, you might need to kind of improvise and go with the flow and relax into a discussion with people. Um, a bit like how I am improvising what I'm saying right now. Uh, and yeah, we do uh, skills that are, are necessary for good public speaking and build confidence in public speaking, which is something that a lot of academics need to do. Uh, so if you are one of those academics, and not only academics, obviously, loads of people have to do public speaking, and all of us hate it, it's horrible. Uh, but we try and provide people with some skills or ways to think about it that gives them some more confidence in their ability to talk to people um yeah just talking is hard um yeah uh, i don't have anything else to say right now i don't think uh until we give you details about when the next show is it's going to be in june though so not too far away um yeah so thanks for listening to the podcast um, now and in general uh, I hope you stick around with us and subscribe to it and uh, we can do another 20 at least I mean that's not too ambitious is it I don't think it's ambitious at all really 20 podcasts we can do 20 podcasts more yeah um, but yeah thanks guys and uh, I will talk to you again soon goodbye goodbye